do this. Um, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 8. We're going to make a hard shift right into the message this morning. We're in a series called Hunger and Thirst. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he's, he's preaching and kind of this collection of, of sermons that he's giving on the, the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who will hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who would hunger and thirst for the right things. Righteousness. There's a word here that's underlying a lot of this, and it's this word passion, that we would be passionate for the right things. That our literal soul, our body would cry out for more of God and more of who He is. Many of us start out strong in this walk of faith and then somewhere along the way tragedy happens. You lose a loved one. You start questioning what's true, what's up, what's down, north and south. And that's okay. Maybe you've gone, you've gone through something difficult or maybe you've just kind of assimilated into the culture. And you begin to grow apathetic because your life isn't really any different than anyone else's life. Uh-oh. And so this fire that was once white hot begins to just kind of settle down. If you've ever been around a campfire and the fire was once roaring and then at the end of the night you've got nothing but just those, those little embers. Now sometimes those embers are hot, but it doesn't take too long for that fire to just really go out. And for many of you, that's exactly how you feel. And you remember a moment, maybe you were in college, or maybe you were, you, know, you got saved two years ago or three years ago, and you were just, you were consumed with the things of God. But now, well, now Jesus just feels kind of normal. The normalcy of the Christian life. And what does it look like for you and I to maintain a passionate love for God, to hunger and thirst for Him. I have good news for you. It doesn't mean that you need to be all decked out in kind of like your sports gear moment where you're just, and that's how you need to be for God. That would be weird. You would be a weirdo if you did that. You don't need to do that. But yet, can your heart have a fire that roars for God? I sure think it can. Father, be with us as we read from your word today. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus. Amen. Paul writes a letter to a young man named Timothy. We're in 2 Timothy this morning, chapter 4. And he writes this letter to him. It's the last letter Paul writes before he dies. He's about 60 years old writing it. If you know Paul's story, he, he was you know, a young man in his, in his 20s, into his 30s, and he was passionate, but he was passionate for all the wrong things. 
he was zealous to persecute Christians. And so Paul, we find in the scriptures, literally being one of the guys who helped lead the arrest and persecution of people who'd put their faith in Jesus. He's helping Christians get locked up. He's helping Christians get jail time and even leading certain Christians to their death and their execution. And then Paul, on one of his journeys to arrest more Christians, he's heading to Damascus. And he's blinded by a light that's so, it's so powerful, it's so gripping, he's, he literally loses his sight for days. And in this moment, he has a vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I've had some dramatic moments, I feel like, with the Lord. Nothing like that. Where I can't see for days on end. Where Jesus appears to me in such a way. And in that moment, Saul, who is also called Paul in the Bible, his entire life is changed. The snap of a finger. He puts his faith in Christ Jesus. And the one who was, become, who was passionate for persecuting Jesus now becomes passionate for preaching Jesus. And he spends the next 30 plus years giving his entire life for the birth of Christianity. Outside of Jesus Christ, no one is considered a more prolific figure in Christianity than Paul. God used him to heal people. Had the most prolific healing ministry. He preached. He did so eloquently. He wrote uh, at least a third of the New Testament. And he traveled from city to city to city at the risk of his own life to preach Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was starving, he was left for dead. Sometimes he had money, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he had clothes, sometimes he didn't. But the one thing that my man had was passion. 2 Timothy 4, here he is. He's penning his last words before he is going to be executed. I'm going to say this to you. There are lots of people who are experts, quote-unquote experts, on passion and living for God. But you know what we would be wise to do is we would be wise to look at the life of somebody who actually lived with passion all the way to the end. And then ask, how did they do it? 2 Timothy 4, for I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Those who've hungered and thirsted for his appearing. Those who've been passionate for the things of God. I have fought this fight, Timothy. 
I have finished my race and I've kept the faith. And now what's waiting for me is eternity with Jesus and the crown of righteousness. That's bold, isn't it? But he can say it with confidence. Not out of arrogance, but because he knows who he is. He's a man after God's heart. So here we are. I've got four things for you this morning. I'm not someone who loves really clear points for you, but you're going to get them today. If you're a no-taker, today is the day you've dreamed of with Pastor Andy. Okay? Clear, concise, four essentials for living with passion. And if I can only get through three, I'm going to come back the next Sunday. I'm going to give you the other one. Four essentials for living with passion, and they all come from the end of Paul's book, the, the letter to Timothy. And the first thing that you need to write that you've got to have buried deep into the depths of your heart is you've got to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you've got to follow him as Lord. And when Paul writes this, I love the descriptor that he uses as he's talking about Jesus because he says, there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord. Everybody say it together. Lord, thank you. You guys were just not with me on that. That was embarrassing. That was really bad, okay? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The word Lord is used to describe Jesus over 700 times in the New Testament. More than anything else, we love to describe him as our Savior and our Rescuer, which he is. Make no mistake about it. But the description that is used most to describe Jesus Christ is that of Lord. And before the resurrection, the term Lord was a descriptor of respect. But something happens in the New Testament after Jesus is risen from the grave. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, has this moment with Jesus. All the disciples are gathered and they've been talking about this account of Jesus and that he's alive. And Thomas doesn't believe because he hasn't seen. He hasn't seen Jesus and yet Jesus appears in the room, and he specifically appears for Thomas. And he allows Thomas to look at the holes in his hands or wrists, and to look at the hole in his side. And what is it that Thomas says? His response is literally, my Lord, my God. And moving forward, in the New Testament, from now on, we see the word Lord not used as simply a sign of respect, but the word Lord is now used in reference to Jesus as the one who has all divine power, divine authority, and who is worthy of our worship. He is our Lord, and he is our Savior. Peter writes of him in chapter 3, verse 15 in 1 Peter. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. When Peter is preaching and all of the, the people are cut to the heart, thousands of people on the day of Pentecost, and he says to them, you crucified this man, Jesus Christ, 
whom God has made both Lord and Savior. This isn't just a a title of respect, like he's the Lord of this area or this jurisdiction. This is divine authority. And when we talk about Jesus and you talk about passion in your heart, if we don't understand our appropriate position before God, we will never be able to have passion truly flow in our heart for him. Who is Jesus and who are we? Well, let me help you and me out this morning. Jesus is Lord. And if you've ever heard the saying, he's Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. Meaning, he's either got all of you or he really doesn't have any of you. Because we can't. A true Lord, a king that's presiding over his kingdom, you are either a subject in his kingdom or you are subverting his kingdom. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? And so here we, we, we don't understand this verbiage very well because we don't live in a city or a nation that has kingdoms in this particular sense. We don't have throne rooms and royalty and things like that. We, we just didn't grow up that way. So it's harder for us to, to, to really gra- grasp it. But understand, when we talk about lords and kings and thrones, it is by the grace of God that you are invited into the throne room of grace. And who is it that is sitting on that throne? Well, it is the king of kings, and it is the lord of lords. But many times, is it not in our relationship with Christ, are we not sitting on the throne calling the shots? Oh, we love Jesus as Savior, but Lord, not so much. And so we sit on the throne of our own hearts and we bring Jesus in as a member of the court for some good consulting, some good wisdom, some great ideas, for him to give some input on our life. But at the end of the day, we would like him to go back to the room somewhere else in the palace, somewhere else in the kingdom, and we would like to sit on the throne again. But if Jesus is Lord, then that means that he is sitting on the throne of your heart and he gets to call all the shots. Are you going to blow it? You better believe it. Welcome to the club. But there is a tremendous difference. When you have yielded authority to Christ in your life, and yes, maybe you, you make a mistake here, or you're struggling with sin here, or a pattern here. I get that. That is, you're going to have some of those challenges. But there's a difference when your heart has not been pierced with the authority of who Jesus is. He is your king. He is not your pal or your buddy that you just kind of make some good relationships with, or he gives you advice on your investments. He's a king, and he's Lord. And yes, the Bible says that he knows us as friend. But even in my own home with my children, my children know me as father, and yes, we are building a tremendous friendship. But that friendship is still rooted in the basic understanding that dad is in charge 
of this house. And that doesn't fly, little boy or little girl. You with me? We say that Jesus changes everything on these two signs. And that is so true. I love it. We've championed it. I, I, I love printing it on things because it's true. But many times we love the fact that Jesus changes everything on the areas of our life that we're desperate for him to change. But understand, when we say that Jesus changes everything, he changes all the things that you desperately need him to change, but he also calls for everything to change that you don't want him to change. And that's what a true king does for you, for you, might I also add. See, this, this passing pleasures of sin, they feel great in the moment, but they are a snare and a trap. And when you understand and get a revelation of his kingship and his authority in your life, even the areas that feel confining or difficult, when you trust him as Lord and King, you realize that what he is doing, the Holy Spirit at work in your lives, it is for your own benefit because he is a good king who has built a good and great kingdom. You want passion in your life? Understand something. Jesus is Lord. If you're the king of your life, passion is going to die. I wrote it this way this morning. I changed this. Where did I write it? I wrote it somewhere. Passion dies when pride thrives. Uh. Yeah. That's mm. got some stank on it. Right? Passion dies when pride thrives. And that's true. That means your casual porn watching, Jesus is after that because he's Lord. Your marriage being submitted to God, God's after that. Jesus is after that, the heart, the way you speak to your spouse, the way you're raising your children, what you allow into your eyes and into your soul. Jesus is after all of it. Not a heavy-handed king, but a king and a Lord who is after your gain and your growth because he loves you. He's after the idolatry that we have of our political parties because his kingdom comes before any political kingdom or party or candidate. He's after how you handle your money. He's after how you lead your family, how you spend your time. He's after all, everything because we're kings in his kingdom. So give him everything. Give him everything. Number two, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 9 through 13. Paul continues to write this to, to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me quickly. I love that. Timothy, do your best to come to me and be speedy about it. For Demas, because he loved this world, he's deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. These are the kinds of things, if you're not paying attention when you read the Bible, you miss so much of what's happening in the text. 
Paul has the kind of relationship with Timothy where he can be vulnerable with him. And he writes him a letter and, and it's sent to him and he says, Timothy, would you come and be by my side? In other words, I'm lonely and I need some companionship. Timothy is like a son to Paul. In fact, the opening, the opening uh, not salutation, but the, the, the opening greeting, thank you, uh, of the letter is my beloved son in the Lord. As he writes about Timothy. He's mentored him, he's discipled, he's trained him. But this relationship has gone way beyond that of just teacher and student. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, would you come and would you be by my side? Do your best to come to me quickly. You know where passion grows? It grows when you can have the kind of relationships where you can truly be vulnerable with the people around you. So many times we think that passionate people are boisterous and always outgoing or they're loud on a microphone. They can sweat when they're preaching and that's what true passion is or they spit from time to time. And those are not markers of passion at all. It doesn't, just, it doesn't mean that you're a passionate person. It just means you can be loud. But passion comes when you have real, true, abiding relationships. Yes, with God, but also with others. Because I don't know about you, but when I am fake, or when I'm presenting a mask or an image of something that I'm not really feeling on the inside, I'm presenting something that's counterfeit. And passion for God doesn't flow through that. That's called hypocrisy. I'm, I'm being an actor. I'm acting like something that I'm not. I'm pretending to be something that I'm not. And it's okay for you to have a bad day. It's okay for you to be scared or to be fearful or to be struggling with something. Passion comes alive when you can really have relationships in your life who look at you and who call you up to something more. Or who sit and they listen. And they love you and they're a friend to you. And they're kind to you. But a good friend is also a friend who knows when to turn the dial and begin to pull you up out of that ditch. That you're in. You're lonely. You're afraid. You're discouraged. You're depressed. That doesn't mean that you don't have passion, but what it does mean is you need to get around people that you can be vulnerable with so that you're not living a fake life. Jesus invited the disciples to stay up with him and do what? Pray. In his moment of tremendous strain and difficulty before the crucifixion. Now they did it because they were weak sauce. All right? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, invited people to pray for him, to pray with him, to stay up and stand with him. Paul is inviting Timothy, come, be with me. Please hurry. James reminds us to pray for one another, the brother of Jesus. Pray for one another that you may be healed. You want to know, I, I, every single time, 
if I'm around somebody long enough and I want to see if they're growing and, and we're in a small group together or a life group together, the person who never has a prayer need, who never has anything for somebody to pray for them about, nothing they're believing for, Nothing they're extending their faith for. No person in their life. No mom, no dad, no anything. That is the person I know is having a difficult time growing in their relationship with Christ. And it won't be long before they are really struggling to have passion come alive. Because passion thrives when you have relationships in your life that you can be vulnerable with. And if there's literally nothing that you're believing for, nothing that you're praying for, then maybe there's also nothing that you're using your faith for. And while this is a freebie and a rabbit trail, get in the game. Get after God. Start believing Him for something. And get some other people praying with you about it. This is why life groups are so important in the life of a church. They are the lifeblood of a church because they allow you in a church even of this size, of this room size, you can't know everybody very well, which means you've got to take a step. And yes, it's fearful. Yes, it's intimidating. But to get engaged in a life group where other people can get to know you and connect with you and love you for who you are and challenge you, and get in the Bible with you, and stay up till 11.30 p.m. on a random life group night when everybody is left to talk about life. Why does that happen? Because people are hungry to be vulnerable, and that's where passion comes alive for Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. Let me even back this up, guys, because relationships are tough, and I'd be amiss if I didn't address the, the, the elephant in the room when it comes to relationships. We are a culture that is a crowd of loneliness. We've never been more connected than we are right now. And yet we've never been more lonely than we are right now. And so when I say, hey, you need better friends or you need friends, people are like, yeah, I know I need friends, but I don't know, how to, I don't know what to do about it. There literally are, there are churches that are creating classes now to help people with their social skills. Because we have become so addicted to these devices that we do not know how to even have conversations anymore. So let me make this very practical for you. In the life of our church, if you find yourself stuck or you find yourself not knowing how to have relationships, it's going to require a measure of courage for you. I know that, and that can be hard. And I'm asking you to risk it, to have faith, and to invite someone to coffee, set aside time on a Saturday morning to go get a Starbucks together, go to the gym together, hike Kennesaw Mountain together. Somebody that you may not even know. It feels like dating, doesn't it? You know, I'm going to ask this person. I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to, we're going to get to know each other and see where we go from there, right? That's how it feels. When you graduate college, making new friends is like dating, 
right? And people don't like that. They don't like the work of that. In fact, I'd rather sit in my sweats on the couch and just scroll through social media, but then it only perpetuates how I feel on the inside, which is lonely. And passion doesn't thrive. It doesn't grow when you don't have real relationships. Put your phone down. Get off the couch. Go get coffee. Or make life group in, our, in the life of our church. Make it a priority. Even married couples, my relationship tank, I got to be honest with you, with four kids and a wife, it's pretty full. Like I don't, I'm not sitting around thinking, you know what I need? More noise in my life. I need more people. That's what I want. I want to go to Starbucks where the music is loud and there's 55,000 conversations happening and try to lock in with you here, right? But you know what I need? That. That's what I need. Maybe not at, at the Bucks, but somewhere. I need to go to a movie with somebody. I need to go and, you know, do an all-you-can-eat, you know, meat buffet at some place, you know? Yeah, praise God. Jesus is alive this morning. Yes! Whatever. Brazilian steakhouse? I mean, come on. Jesus loves that. Second Timothy chapter 4, 14 through 16. Alexander the metal worker, this is all, he's writing this to Timothy, mind you. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. This is the one that gets me. It's hard not to get emotional preaching this. Because here's Paul at the end of his life. And even now, he's letting offenses go to make sure that Jesus is exalted in his heart. I don't know about you, but offense is one of those things. Whenever anybody says, oh, you, you can't offend me, you're the first person. You're the person who gets offended the fastest. Well, I got thick skin. No, you don't. No, you don't. You think you do. And Paul is doing the heavy lifting of letting God take care of those who've wronged him. And he's letting it go. Alexander did me great harm. You know what? It's for God to deal with. In other words, Timothy, don't concern yourself with it. Be, be careful around him. If you're around him, be, be on your guard. But don't hold on to resentment and bitterness because bitterness will eat at your passion for Jesus. Embrace a life of forgiveness and reject bitterness, church. Nothing will poison your heart faster and drive passion and love for God right out the door than holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. If you've ever heard me say before, you've never met a generous, bitter person. It's true. 
I've never met somebody who is both generous and bitter and resentful. They don't go hand in hand. You know what else doesn't go with it? Passion for God and unforgiveness in your heart. Which means you've got to do some hard work at examining what's on the inside because I promise you there have been people who've wronged you. I've got people in my own life that, that I've had to forgive. And you know what? A year later, something will come up and I'll, I'll realize I still got something in there towards that person. And I've got to let it go all over again. And embracing not just a moment of forgiveness, but a life of forgiveness where you treat people with an open hand just like this rather than a clenched fist like this. I'm going to make you pay. Forgiveness literally is a, is a financial term. It means to release from payment. So when we talk about forgiving someone, we're talking about you wanting to make them pay for what they've done to you and instead letting it go. Alexander did me great harm. Many theologians believe part of Paul's extended prison time is because potentially of the testimony of Alexander who testified to Paul stirring up trouble in city after city. Meaning Paul is in shackles potentially because of Alexander. He's writing this, if you didn't know, from prison where he's awaiting execution, and instead of harboring anger, he's letting it go. And then those who did it, this may be the hardest part of it all, the friends that he should have been able to count on weren't there for him. They didn't show up in his hour of need. They weren't there for him in, in his moment where he was, he was really hungry for something from his relationships. But what does he remind Timothy? He says, don't. Hold it against them. In other words, let it go. Don't harbor that offense. For some of you, you've got pain in your heart towards a mom and towards a dad, towards a brother or a sister, a pastor somebody that you worked with on staff, on a leadership team, or at work. And you go through those conversations in your mind. You think about, if I run into them, this is what I want to say. This is what I want to happen to them. And there's poison in your heart. And it's literally like acid eating at your passion for the Lord. Let God deal with those who hurt you. Take a deep breath this morning and literally give it to him to deal with. I'm not suggesting that you need to become best friends with those who hurt you. You may never have a friendship with them again. But you can let go of the anger that's boiling in your heart the resentment, the bitterness. You may need a moment like we're going to have after service and then, and then you still got to fight for it. 
because it's going to come knocking on the door of your heart. And then you just, you keep forgiving. You keep praying and you keep forgiving and you keep letting go and you give it to God. Even though it may come knocking on your door, I can promise you it's going to come knocking less and less and less until one day you wake up and you can talk about what happened and there's no longer a sharp pain in your side about it. You can talk about it. I had someone on staff in our last church who was my best friend in the church who was cheating on his spouse with another staff member in our church for several years and we didn't know about it. You think, how on earth didn't you know about it, Andy? Because people can hide what they want to hide. And when it all came out, I was so... I was hurt. I was offended. Not only was it my friend, it was the church that I'm helping pastor. So there's a measure of, you know, protecting the flock, the damage it's going to do to people who've been following this person and uh, all the, the, the compounding effect of this. And I was driving in my car, my, my Dodge Stratus, and out of my mouth I prayed, God, I wish you'd just take him out with a bus. And about 30 seconds later, I was hit by a bus. My car was pinned under a kid's bus, student bus, the big yellow one. My car was totaled. And I got out of the car, and I literally just looked up. I said, okay. I get it. I give this to you. This person has hurt me more than you will. Well, you will know. But most people will never know. But I choose to forgive. God, here. And then I had to keep fighting for it after I got my new car. Let it go. had to let go of things in our own in this church here people saying something that's hurtful or offensive or somebody didn't call you and you've had to do the same with me and he didn't say hi to me this morning <laughs> that's quite possible let it go embrace forgiveness and reject bitterness there's a lot more to be said here but we don't have time this morning. There's much to be said about Mark, who, if you recall from the text, Paul says, would you bring Mark? He's really been a blessing to me in my ministry. What you don't know is Mark and Paul had a bitter splitting up. Imagine a mission trip or a church planting trip, and the two main guys who are planting this church together are feuding so great that they can't even be on the same continent together the same country together, so they leave. Yet somehow, we don't know what happened, but somewhere along the way, they both fought to have their hearts right before God. And while not every moment where you forgive and, and reject bitterness ends well, in this case, with Mark, it did. And in his last moments of life, Paul wants to have time with Mark. 
It's a beautiful picture of restoration. I'm going to leave you with this. 2 Timothy 4, chapter 13. When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. I'm going to wind this all the way down for you. You want to live with passion? Follow Jesus as Lord. Be vulnerable with the relationships around you. Embrace a life of forgiveness and reject bitterness. And you know what else you've got to do? Is you've got to commit to a life of growth. Paul is literally nearing the end. And you know what he's asking for? He's asking for basically his blanket and his books. Oh, and bring some parchment because I don't know how much time I got left here, but I've got some more letters I can write that will help out God's church. I can still send something. I can still write something. There's still things for me to read. I got a little bit left in the tank here. Far be it from me to just go passing in the night. And yet for so many of us, we look at growth like it's this one-time, bam, moment. And we look for moments in a church where we sense the Holy Spirit descending from heaven. And that's going to transform us and grow us. And yes, those moments are real. And yes, God has used them in my own life. But hear me, church. A life of devotion to God is so much better than a life where you are running after and searching after moments with God. Mountaintop experiences. Let those moments come and cultivate the kind of life that is regularly devoted to the things of God. Where you're in those books where you're getting that coffee in the morning and you're getting your blanket on and you're literally settling in on the couch to read God's word like you do every single day. Because growth matters to you. Because if we look at the life of Paul and we see how he's going out in a blaze of glory, what's he doing? He's still hungry for more. Give me more. Can you bring my books? You bring my cloak. I get chilly in the morning. And I really want to read. I want to learn from those who've gone before me. I still got room. There's still more transformation left. Yeah, I'm nearing my end and I'm finishing my fight. I'm finishing this race, but I'm not finished yet. I still got a couple days. I still got a few weeks. I still got a few months. Bring my blanket, would you? Bring that really good coffee. Bring my books and my parchment. There's still work to be done. See, there's work to be done in your own life, church. And if you've grown up in the kind of Bible Belt South, it's really easy to settle in to church life, being you attending on Sunday and walking right back to the life that you have Sunday afternoon. And my question for you to wrestle with is who's really going to do something about it? 
Who really wants to bow their knee to the lordship of Christ in their life? Who's going to do it? Who's going to man up or woman up and really do the hard work of confessing Jesus as their King and Lord? Who's going to embrace truly forgiveness and begin to reject bitterness? Who is going to take that step maybe even today where you invite someone to lunch to get to know them a little bit more, that you might have a relationship that goes a little bit deeper, where you can begin to grow in transparency with one another. Who's going to do it? Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Do it. Who's going to begin fighting for room still in their life to grow, to become a leader in God's church. We've got room for leaders to step up in this church, if you didn't know that. But it's going to take some people who are willing to walk in still growing opportunities with God. Who's going to do that? My prayer and my hope is that some of you my prayer and hope is that it's all of you. Father, we thank you this morning. That you're a God who cares about the details and affairs of our heart. And even in this moment right now where you can literally just hear a pin drop. God, I thank you for this moment of silence and reflection where Lord you can speak to us right here God some of us need to forgive and to let go some of us need that fresh wind in our sail to begin fighting after you running after you God some of us need to Embrace what it looks like for you not just to be Savior, but Lord. God, would you help us this morning? Lord, we long for more of you. 